Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan and today on The Detail... We'll go now to the Solomon Islands where days of rioting and looting have ruled the capital Honiara, leaving at least three people dead. The trouble stemmed from a protest against the government that led to a building being torched at Parliament Precinct before leading to more destruction and looting in town. Now 15 Defence Force troops are today heading to the Solomon Islands to help calm the growing unrest. A further 50, also including police officers, are due to depart at the weekend. We'll um, take a peacekeeping role uh, to ensure that we can support uh, the effort in the community to clean up. New Zealand has joined Australia, Fiji and Papua New Guinea in sending police and military forces to Solomon Islands to help quell protests and riots, which began late last month. Today on the podcast, I'm sitting down with RNZ Pacific's Kudoi Hawkins, a Solomon Islander himself, to discuss the background to these riots, what the protesters want, the deeply entrenched problems with the Solomon's colonial political system, and how it feels watching something like this unfold in your homeland from thousands of kilometres away. So whereabouts in the world are Solomon Islands? So... They're about no- northeast of Australia uh, is the, probably the easiest way to get a, a grip on it. So if you start above Australia, there's Papua New Guinea, comes down into the Solomon Islands, then Vanuatu, then New Caledonia. So that's that sort of arc uh, up the top of Australia there. So we're, we're sort of squished between Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, almost the same island chain, you could argue. Okay. And so tell me a bit about the country. How many people live there? A sort of vague pricey of, of the history of that part of the, the world, if you could? Yeah. So 2020 official uh, estimates were 686,878. But it's always been difficult to get the census fully correct in the Solomon Islands because a lot of the population are in remote rural areas. And even in the cities, it's a pretty poor urban planning, so there's no street street numbers or names, so to, so to speak, within the residential areas and a lot of settlements. So they're, they're saying less than a million now. It's probably, probably I'd say, closer to a million and above in, in, in reality. 95% Melanesian in terms of ethnicity. Still, we have uh, Polynesian, Micronesian communities, indigenous communities and also um, uh, various mix of, of foreigners. Mm. Historians say the islands were first settled around 28,000, 30,000 BC with um, a second wave of migrants, the Lapita people or pottery people, also settling in, and resulting in, in the Solomon Islands indigenous population we have now. First European contact was Alvaro de Mendana, a Spanish navigator, came in contact with the Solomons in 1568. Uh, later on, the British declared uh, Solomon Islands Archipelago, which at the time stretched up way up into Papua New Guinea, so Bougainville and those islands as well. So that whole area was called the Solomon Islands Archipelago. So they declared the Southern Solomons, they called it, a British protectorate, which is the Solomon Islands we have now. So Solomon Islands, were were they ever sort of colonised by Europeans in the way that I suppose New Zealand was? Or is there a, a, is, is it a more complicated kind of picture when it comes to that? Yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't um, a colony, but it, um, so it was, uh, the word they used, as I said, there was protectorate. Mm-hmm. So they had sort of oversight of it. Um, they had um, pretty much everything that you would have in a colony, except they weren't as invested in Solomon Islands as they were in, say, Fiji or in Vanuatu 
or in, in other parts of the region. So they, they had a loose sort of watch over the country with district commissioners and the like, but they weren't an actual colony. Um, the Solomon Islands, interestingly, it was a major battleground in the in the Pacific in World War Two. is that right? Yeah, definitely. So fierce, fierce fighting from 1942 to 1945, the most famous being the Battle of Guadalcanal, uh, which was a major turning point in the war in the Pacific. The uh, harbour or the, the ocean, the sound in front of Guadalcanal is actually called the Iron Bottom Sound because there's so many wrecked Allied forces and Japanese warships and aircraft in that littering the whole of the sound. So there's a lot, even growing up in Solomon Islands, we were always um, picking up shells and dog tags and collecting the old U.S. Army Coke bottles, you know, the really, really strong ones, strong Coke bottles that they brought back now and, and uh, climbing up and down tanks and diving to see bombers and, and all different kinds of things. It's actually a big part of the tourism when there was tourism is um, World War II vets, both the U.S. and Japanese coming back and coming through. There's six main islands, like big islands, nine provinces, 900 islands altogether. So the capital, Honiara, is on Guadalcanal. So that's probably, I'd say, where a lot of the politics goes down. A lot of the the wealth, everything is centred in Guadalcanal, which is a a big part of the problem which we'll come to in terms of that lack of decentralisation. The most populous province would be Malaita, uh, Malaitans make up a lot of the workforce. Um, they're very industrious. So there's Malaitan communities all across the Solomon Islands. Uh, so they are uh, active in, in all aspects of Solomon Islands life across all provinces. And the western province where I come from is more the, more the tourism hub. And then the other provinces, there's a bit of a, a disconnect between Honiara, which is the capital, and say Temotu province, quite distant towards Vanuatu, the shortlands up near Papua New Guinea, and so the the arm of government or the the machinery of government isn't actually as noticeable the further you go from Honiara in in the provinces. Now you heard Kuroi there talking about how Solomon Islands were made a protectorate of the British Empire, and this bears a bit more explanation because the knock-on effects are part of what's led to the protests we're seeing today. The Solomons were declared a protectorate in 1893, and being a protectorate theoretically meant that local affairs are taken care of by local rulers, and international affairs were handled by Britain. That's in theory, of course. In practice, the British tried to set up colonies and industries on the island, plantations and logging operations and mines and so on, but were relatively unsuccessful. Now, after the war, Britain began to lose control of their colonies and protectorates as costs spiralled and the British Empire's power waned. And a process of self-governance was begun in the 1960s. By 1978, the country was fully independent, adopting, and this is key, a Westminster style of government, like ours. The people of the Solomons, of course, had been around for hundreds of years by that point. They had their own way of doing things. It was largely regional. And these islands are spread out. As Kuroi said, there are more than 900 all up, a situation that doesn't necessarily lend itself to centralised decision-making. And that brings us to the current conflict. A police station and several shops were set on fire by looters on Wednesday in Solomon Islands after what started in the morning as a peaceful protest turned ugly around mid-afternoon. 
We'll go now to the Solomon Islands, where days of rioting and looting have ruled the capital, Honiara, leaving at least three people dead. Chinese residents in the city appear to have feared the worst. Some have told RNZ they've lost everything and been left homeless. The particular issues that caused the unrest right now, it's sort of tied in with underlying long-standing issues with a lack of consultation from the government, a lack of um, delivery on promises made during elections, a lot of grandstanding in elections and big pie-in-the-sky projects that promised for the provinces, so the lack of delivery on that. And then there's been a lot of um, just self-serving moves by the government. A couple of years back, they made their their salaries tax-free. They gave they give themselves pay increases. Well, uh, a perception is the country is struggling. And most recently, I think the straw that that broke the camel's back was they try. They've been trying to extend the length of parliament from four years, which means elections in 2023, and they've tried to extend it to five years so that they have an extra year in parliament. There has been zero consultation with the public on this issue, and yes, it is a massive a massive change in terms of our constitution because we're actually tinkering with the people's right to vote and the universal suffrage, which is one of the cornerstones of our constitutions. Arguing, you know, COVID's disrupted their plans and also their, uh, Solomon Islands is supposed to be hosting the Pacific Games in 2023 and they want to be part of that. So, so all that sort of the perception that leaders are sort of not listening to people and just going ahead and doing what they want is sort of what this has all come to a head with now. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier as well the idea that there was sort of inter-island rivalries and that, you know, certain parts of Solomon Islands feel a bit of sort of discontent at the lack of resourcing, is it, or support that comes from the capital, Honiara. Is there something in that as well? Yeah, definitely. So, like... At Independence, it was the Western province that was the most vocal about not yet getting independence from Britain. Um, um, the Malaita province has always been quite vocal and, and sort of a bit against authority when they see decisions being made in the capital that aren't beneficial to the provinces. Um, Timotu uh, province has, has felt closer to Vanuatu and and or trades more towards that country up in up in the shortlands really close ties with Bougainville and Papua New Guinea so it's quite a there's a lot of of different dynamics in the country and and Renault and Bologna of course uh in the in the south uh, feel completely disconnected from Honiara as well the most vocal province though has been Malaita another important point we have to make here there is quite a bit of ethnic tension in the Solomons. Back in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a lot of migration of people from the most populous island, Malaita, to the island with the best economic opportunities, Guadalcanal, which is where the capital Honiara is. This led to a bit of resentment from some Guadalcanal locals. Rival armies were formed, and ultimately the Prime Minister, Bartholomew Ulufa'alu, was kidnapped and forced to resign. It turned into an ethnic conflict, but initially it wasn't an ethnic conflict. Um, now, you have to remember that I think it's something like 90% of the land in Solomon Islands is customary owned. Mm-hmm. So the people own more land than the government by far. Uh, and so chiefs and, and local councils and all, all of that come into play in terms of, of what happens 
outside of the urban centres, outside of government land. Mm. And so that when, when, when you have a place like Honiara, which is a sprawling, really unplanned city, encroaching onto customary land in Gorokanal, it causes massive problems when the indigenous people who own the land outright are not happy with how that expansion is happening. So one of the things that happened and the tensions was a call for the capital to be moved off of Gorokanal. And then the other big factor in Solomon Islands is the corruption. Um, there's systemic corruption all the way through the public sector, the private sector. And it's quite, if you, if you go there with a the microphone and ask people, they just talk openly about it. Like it's not even hidden. Transparency International's first barometer of corruption in the Pacific also um, pointed to, to how, how bad the situation is in Solomon Islands. The way I see it when I came here to New Zealand is like you have all of these um, little, you know, councils, you have um, committees and everything all through the, the society at the church level, at community level. In Solomon Islands, there's none of that. Like there's none of that lower level <laughs> evidence of that democratic system. It's all like chiefly councils, what the chief says goes, um, a bit of church influence in those communities. And then uh, the provincial government kind of structured in the Westminster way, but not fully resourced or not properly resourced. So they're not able to function effectively. And then you hit the national government and all of a sudden we're a full Westminster, a westernized system of parliament. So there's really a lack of understanding and even almost a corruption of the system itself because the way that MPs are seen and elected in Solomon Islands is based on what they can do directly, physically, with money, with development for their constituencies. Mm. They're not elected on their policies or on legislation or what they're going to change in the law. So people are very much voting for MPs as big men still, like the big men in the village and and what they can deliver for the people that vote for them. Right, so that's some of the background what about these riots? Riots have been a problem in Solomon Islands for a long time now. Um, the first big political riot was the 2006 riots. More than 100 people have been arrested following days of rioting in the Solomon Islands. Police also found three bodies in a burnt-out building. Large parts of the capital, Honiara, have been reduced to ruins. This was the scene after rioters set fire to a number of buildings. The city's Chinatown neighbourhood was one of the main targets of violence. A government was in place that they saw wasn't doing what they wanted. Um, they they went to parliament and the government was reinstated and the town went apeshit. And at the time, foreign forces were in country. So Australians were there, Ramsey was there, and they still tore the town to shreds. Um, and the prime minister stepped down immediately, like within the next, within the week, and that sort of set a precedent for political upheaval in, in Solomon Islands. So there there have always been issues around elections and especially the, the the election of the prime minister. Over time, prime ministers have resisted the move uh, or the, the pathway of Snyder in Gordandasi Lilo. There was a riot and he refused to step down, saying he'd only be removed on the floor of parliament. And that's again what Songovari has been saying here again. He's not going to give in to the mob that sets a bad precedent in terms of when people are unhappy, they just riot and the government falls. With Ramsey, the regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands, which was uh, led by Australia, had troops from New Zealand all over the Pacific in-country after the ethnic 
the bloody ethnic crisis and conflict of the 2000s, mm. they sort of trained up our local police force to a really high standard. So they were more effective in, in um, suppressing riots and quelling um, unrest. So there have been little little skirmishes, little riots ongoing throughout the, the political, sort of recent political history, but they've managed to control it. But this time, um, as, we, as we've seen, it, it just went completely out of control. I'm sad to say it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of poverty in, in uh, Honiara. Like locally, there's a lot of pride and people say, look, we've got lots of land and resources and I have a home to go back to in the province. I can you know, make a garden and feed myself and all of that. But in the cities, there is, you know, there's the bright lights. People come from all over the country into Honiara looking to improve, looking for education, for opportunities, and there's just not very much there. So the city has swelled in the number of people that are in the informal economy, the settlements. And so I think what, what's changed compared to 2006 is just the size of Honiara. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more people in that melting pot. And then on top of that, um, COVID, there hasn't been COVID in the community. It has impacted the economy, but the government took on emergency powers since the start of the pandemic and has actually been able to do a lot of declarations, a lot of like, you have to listen to us because we have emergency powers. There's been a lot of that business going on in terms of the the governing in the past two years. So it's exacerbated those things I talked about, about people not feeling consulted, about people feeling that the government's just acting without consultation with the people. So there's that, that element, I think, is what has been most antagonistic, I think is the word. It's, it's, it's the thing that's, that's prodded people more into feeling like their government's not listening to them. Mm, yeah. And, and that, that rioting and, and, and looting element of it, there, there is an interesting sort of uh, element to that, isn't there, as well? Because and, and this is to do with sort of the geopolitical and, and, and diplomatic ties of Solomon Islands. Um, and this decision a couple of years ago to switch diplomatic allegiance from from Taiwan to China. Can you tell me a, a little bit about that? Yeah, it's 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 complex. Like the first thing, a lot of the shops in Solomon Islands are Chinese shops. <laughs> like the majority of the shops by far in, in the capital are Chinese shops. So if you loot any shops, you're going to end up looting a Chinese shop at some point. Yeah. The focus on China that seems to be in a lot of the international media reporting and Taiwan is an element but not the main element of the issues in Solomon Islands. The the, the Solomons have appealed for international aid here and uh, New Zealand has just decided to send some, some people over there. Now 15 Defence Force troops are today heading to the Solomon Islands to help calm the growing unrest. A further 50, also including police officers, are due to depart at the weekend. What is the situation in terms of international involvement at the moment? Yeah, so, so again, this whole architecture that's kicked in regionally to support the Solomon Islands is a throwback to Ramsey. So the regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands was sent to Solomon Islands by the Pacific, with the with the blessing of the Pacific Islands Forum. It was a regional mission led by Australia, all Pacific countries involved. Um, they ended the they ended the conflict in two thousand and three, and and stayed there for fourteen years, bro. Fourteen years to rebuild the country, build back a police force, improve the machinery of government, get revenue going and try and and stamp out some of the issues 
that caused this. So what they basically did and what they said they were there to do was create a safe environment for the local leaders to sort out this crap. The local leaders didn't use that time. They did not, within that 14 years, do any of the actual work that needed to be done to address these underlying issues that keep surfacing, that keep boiling up. For example, after the tensions, they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Massive document produced from that, recommendations never tabled in Parliament. They never looked at it. They said that it was too sensitive. The, the accounts in the book would just raise up issues again. So that, that's been collecting dust. Um, the Townsville Peace Agreement, which initially stopped the mining, had a few things in there, both from the Guadalcanal side and the Malayan side, that they promised to address, never addressed. Sort of situation that these regional forces, including New Zealand, are stepping into, they have to go in there and say they're neutral and probably are neutral and keep the peace and and hope that these things are sorted out. And they're saying a few weeks, all these <laughs> all these guys are saying a few weeks, bro. The last mission took 14 years before they could leave. And they're saying a few weeks. I, I, I doubt it. I'd put money on them not being, not being out by probably June next year. They'd still be there, I reckon. It must be very sad for you seeing this. Oh, I've been reporting on this shit for decades, man. Like, yeah, it's just... Like, the thing that hurts me is if you go down to the provinces and you talk to chiefs and the people and the church leaders and the communities, they're really warm, loving people that sort of trying to improve their lot, trying to improve things for the community. There's really communal spirit and people, a lot of the older generation, talk about the old Solomon Islands and, like, mm. how it used to be. Um, but I think that's still there. Like, there's still, in the rural areas, people, for the people, sort of looking out for each other. And and needs are so basic, bro. It's just, like, water supply, good health, like, basic, having medicines in in the, in the clinics, having health services, schools, like, leaders in town are uh, walking around with millions and so much money that's floating around the capital and there's schools in the, in the, in the provinces with kids, whole classrooms sharing one textbook, bro. Mm. Like, you know, wooden desks, classrooms falling apart. There's a lot of good people trying to make things change. But as you say, the thing that I find most encouraging is that intergenerational change that you're talking about. Mm. There's young people... Um, leading the uh, a lot of these cleanups, the, there's young people trying to make a difference within the the different neighbourhoods, the different settlements in Honiara. Young leaders that are uh, full for for what change can bring to Solomon Islands, and and seeing those people and seeing their posts and what they're writing about and how they're processing and dealing with this encourages me. So I I hope that that can change in terms of as you say, as as these old ways or these current bad habits are, are slowly sort of put aside and the next generation of leaders and the next can get through. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. 
You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Karoi Hawkins. Matewa.